Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Before you get to the show, make sure you check out theringer.com for our extensive NBA playoff coverage leading up to the NBA Finals. Also look out for a 2019 NBA Draft Guide, which now features 50 of Kevin O'Connor's scouting reports. The Draft Guide has a first-round mock draft, big board rankings from our draft experts like Jonathan Charks and Danny Chow, and much more to come leading up to the draft itself on June 20th. Once again, check out The Ringer's 2019 NBA Draft Guide and all of our NBA coverage over on TheRinger.com. David... Game of Thrones ended on Sunday, and there's already some concern in the media. I'm not naming any names here. I'm going to leave all the names of the websites out of it. There is some concern in the media that the traffic gathering, boosting properties of Game of Thrones cannot be replicated. Oh, right. What I want to know is, what would you cover to fill the traffic gap left by Game of Thrones. Wow. Well, uh, the trailer they ran on Sunday night for Westworld was spectacular. And as someone who has spent a large portion uh, of his life at very at one point in time doing a Westworld podcast, um, wait, you mean you mean we're just going to start covering other shows in microscopic detail? We don't just we don't just do Game of Thrones. I often wonder. I mean, this was there's certainly an end of the monoculture thing about this. We wrote about it on the Ringer, and it's a lot of people have talked about it. I often wonder if there's a, you know, if we all just decided that we're going to be this in on whatever Star Trek show is running on CBS All Access or whatever. I mean, is there a way, could we, can we artificially manufacture this level of excitement and attention? Probably not. I think that, you know, for better or worse, we're going to be paying a lot of attention to this presidential election for the next little bit. Although taking all of the brain space that we all collectively spend on Game of Thrones and Putting into politics might be a a vague public good, but it's I can't I don't think anybody would say that's a you know smart allocation of our mental resources. <laughs> here's the here's the way I think those two things will come along because all right, just like every important television show, we will get to the end of the presidential election. We'll have this incredible oh. monoculture night of television, yeah, and then we will get the take we get at the end of Game of Thrones and every TV show, which is. The finale left a lot of viewers disappointed and with a lot of outstanding questions. <laughs> so I think that's it. I think that's exactly right. We are the Peak TV of Media Podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Well done. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're no longer allowed to write a piece comparing anyone to a Game of Thrones character. The window has closed. Get a new angle. Now, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here with three topics for your pleasure and amusement. First, David, if you thought the presidential campaign of Seth Moulton was kind of random, <laughs> wait till you get a load of Bill de Blasio. We discuss what in God's name the mayor of New York City is doing in the Democratic primary. Second, ESPN Stephen A. Smith had quite a week, and we try to decipher what exactly happened there. That's all I can say. And finally, I wanted to spend a smidge more time on the topic of Brian Williams because Brian Williams fabulous news anchor is back really back should he be all that plus the notebook dump and the overworked Twitter joke of the week but David let's start with Bill de Blasio can I give you a couple of scenes from the early stages of the de Blasio for president campaign oh god please do uh this is via Eric Lack of the New Yorker on Thursday 
the official start of his candidacy, de Blasio's first stop was Good Morning America, where he dubbed the president Con Don. <laughs> Con Don. Do we think that Bill de Blasio is going to win the nickname wars against Donald Trump? I, I, I kind of suspect not. Um, and then another scene from the New York Daily News is Anna Sanders. Uh, before that interview, de Blasio staged a provocative Green New Deal press conference at Trump Tower. According to Sanders, Trump supporters swore, booed, and chanted while de Blasio spoke, carrying signs de- declaring him to be the worst mayor ever, with depictions of the failed mayor as a donkey, excrement, and Sesame Street's Big Bird. So um, <laughs> we really run the gamut there of, uh, of references. What do you think? This is, let's start with a basic question. Why is Bill de Blasio running for president? Well, uh, there's you know been a lot of uh, scuttlebutt floating around the Twitter sphere that he <laughs> hates his job and uh, is looking for any sort of graceful exit. And this is sort of a uh, I don't know if graceful is going to going to actually be the the best way to describe it. But this is a um, this is one way to to pull the ejection ejector seat without looking like you're running running away. Uh, who knows? I mean, I, I think that if you even given you know the benefit of the doubt. It's sort of like what I think you talked about with with Pete Buttigieg a while back. I mean, the, being the mayor of New York is a terminal job, right? I mean, there's like very few, mm-hmm. very few mayors would you know have any interest or ability to go in to be governor of the state of New York. And I'm not, and I don't think anyone would really see that as a promotion unless you're just a you know diehard uh, uh, machine politician or technocrat. Or I mean, I don't even know what the what the rationale would be, um, and. You know, I think that there's a lot being the mayor of New York City it feels like an amazing gig and an amazing accomplishment, and it is. Um, but you know, I think that there's a degree to which your, uh, you know, maybe your ego gets overinflated because of the attention that you get, or your, or just the, the the you know number the the recognition that you have compared to other major city mayors. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think at some point, you if, if you're a politician, you want to keep being a politician. You've got to look around for what the next gig is going to be. And uh, there's really only one, you know, certifiable step up from mayor of New York. Now, that doesn't mean it makes any rational sense. I mean, I don't I don't think that I mean, this is this is a misbegotten candidacy from day one. But I, I'm not I mean, and 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 it is, um, you know, it is a, it, it's it's it, well, I'll just stick with misbegotten, but you know, also misbegotten. We should <laughs> we we should say we're you know in different ways and and to different degrees. We're those the the candidacies of Michael Bloomberg and Rudy Giuliani. You know, I mean, it, the idea that you can just catapult yourself from that platform to the presidency is is uh you know I think it, it's a it's a weird move that's exclusive to to the minds of New York mayors. And even those guys had a lot more national residents. Sure than bill de blasio has the um so so let's say part of it is delusions of grandeur as you say you're the new york mayor everybody's telling you how great you are um part of it i assume with de blasio is he thinks he has some non-zero chance of winning this thing maybe closer to zero than non-zero but but some chance especially for a guy in lack nods of the nods of this in the new yorker who was not expected to be the mayor of new york mm-hmm. and won an upset in the Democratic primary there. I would say the other thing with all these people who are marginal cancer running is I just think they figured out in some ways that, you know, the take the take you and I have been trotting out and that everybody's been trotting out is, 
you know, you're going to get a book deal. You'll get more name recognition. You'll get a cable news job. You'll, you'll improve your, your prospects in some ways. But I think even just refining it down a little bit is they figured out there's just this giant thirst, especially on cable news for content. And that if the moment you declare yourself a presidential candidate, your content, you, you are in, mm-hmm. and it doesn't really matter if you have no chance at all. I was just looking at the CNN announcement today. Their next, they have Beto O'Rourke this week for a town hall. And then their next four town halls are Michael Bennett, uh, Senator from Colorado, the aforementioned Seth Moulton, Tim Ryan, and Eric Swalwell. Like none of those guys have any chance of being president of the United States. The last three have less than no chance of being president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And they're getting full highbrow CNN town halls that are about the quote unquote issues. But that's just because CNN needs programming, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And these guys have figured out like, hey, I'm going to get an hour on CNN. If I'm a, you know, I'm coming from England, so excuse the uh, terminology. If I'm a backbencher in Congress, I'm not getting an hour on CNN. But man, as soon as I declare for president, I'm going to be on TV. Yeah. And this is awesome. Yeah, I think that's right. There's no downside, right? I mean, I guess I guess there is a downside, which would be just like a totally ignominious campaign. I mean, just some sort of like uh, controversy, some sort of uh, just fall from grace. But um, yeah, I mean, measured the way that you just described, it seems like there's no downside. And I don't think there should be an implicit downside. This isn't like a, or an inherent downside. I don't think that we should set up the election so that like, you know, you got to put up your own money and, and and risk losing it or so, or something like that. Of course not. But it does seem like we're, we're in a weird space where, I mean, listen, that's, this is the way we talked about Trump before he got elected. And I'm not saying that any of these people you mentioned have even a chance to be a dark horse like Trump was. You can't, you can't discount anything. But the idea that Trump was just, you know, running, running for office to increase his national profile so that you know, he could do better. At, I mean, increase his, his his business portfolio, or or just be taken more seriously. I mean, there, there's a lot of reasons why people would run that that don't involve necessarily winning the election. Yeah, I, I would say maybe not no downside, but the downside is less than it's ever been. I think the downside for De Blasio is that he's in the midst of what is you know generously going to be described as a semi-successful stint as mayor of New York. Mm-hmm. And if this is a big adventure that takes him away from New York and it goes badly, that his uh, terms as mayor are going to look even worse. And presumably he sort of cares about that. I know as a politician, you're supposed to stop caring about that once you get reelected and you just, um, as you say, you just run for something else. But I, I, you know, I think there's some part of him that maybe cares about that, but maybe not. And maybe that's just such a frustrating job. And additionally, in addition to being a limiting job, as you said, mm-hmm. it's so frustrating. You're going to get killed by all the papers, no matter what you do um, or because of what you do in his case. And, and there you are. I had another campaign story. I'd love to shoehorn into this segment, which is Elizabeth Warren refusing to do the town hall on Fox News. Oh, yeah. This is something interesting because we've we've played around with this, but the argument sort of boils down to. Let's not create content for this channel and ratings for this channel and somehow legitimize this channel versus we, and by we, I mean Elizabeth Warren, maybe especially here, need to talk to and reach the kind of people who watch Fox News. Is that Are those the terms of the argument? Yeah. More or less? For sure. I just, it's interesting to me because I, I, when, I, when I saw her do that, I believe... I believe she believes what she says about Fox News. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, 
I think these are all moral decisions halfway and also strategic decisions. And it's a very on brand for Elizabeth Warren, who is running as more electable Bernie Sanders uh-huh. and Bernie Sanders with, with more plans to say, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. Just like it's on brand for Buttigieg, who was just on there on a Chris Wallace uh, interview to go do it because he is running as, you know, Mr. Heartland. I can speak to the people of Indiana Democrat. Yeah. And we talked about this with Howard Stern last week. I always think like people want to say this is a this is a moral choice or a strategic choice. And with most human beings, especially human beings running for president, it's usually a combination of both. Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen this from Warren or from her campaign a few times. I mean, when she before she announced when she released that video about her background, I mean, that felt I'm sure she, I mean, she, we know that she that that was all meaningful to her and 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 it you know she she believed every bit of it but it felt like a calculated sure m- political move with an eye towards a candidacy when she called for Trump's impeachment I think I said last week or the week before that it felt calculated in, in its way even though I'm sure she wouldn't have done it just in a purely you know just just in a, a, a show person uh, style and this feels the same way I mean but and it you know you have to say that I think that the more electable Bernie thing is right but um, in the absence of Bernie Sanders, she would probably be the one that was being, you know, tarred as a socialist and and probably would have gotten a lot more of the the steam behind a campaign than that. I mean, a, a lot of that energy that, that he received. But with Bernie there and with Bernie having, you know, a previous campaign um, undergirding this one, um, it's you know, she's she is scrapping for that far left Democrat base. Right. I mean, she's she's she yep. she. She did. She at this point, the calculus has to be that she doesn't feel like she can, she can campaign with an eye towards a general election yet, right? I mean, at this point, she's still trying to shore up her hard left bona fides, and and uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I'd say medium left to hard left somewhere in there. Um, but yeah, no, I I agree, and I think um, I think we could also, by the way, draw a pretty direct connection between candidates who need to go on Fox News Mm -hmm. because where are they in the polls and candidates that actually go on Fox News? I mean, if you're Elizabeth Warren right now, Bernie's lost some ground in the polls. You're creeping up a little bit. Um, You're definitely, at least in the Nate Silver first tier of candidates, uh, there's there's a path to you for winning this nomination. And for somebody else, there's probably not. So it's like, you don't necessarily have to take that bait and go on there. Yeah. Um, I noticed John John Delaney, another rando running for president, tweeted at her, if you're not using your town hall, I will, because he needs it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just it's always fine to me to see like and I know there's like so many people who are parts of liberal Twitter or and or Democratic primary voters who are like who have really serious feelings about Fox News. I would just I would just suggest that this probably contains a lot of strategy and running for president is taking things you believe or sort of believe and turning them into things that will appeal to voters. And this is what she's doing with this, just like all of her other positions that she's throwing out there uh, to try to get votes. Yeah. I mean, it's all political. It's all. Yeah. But it's, and it's, and it's calculus. If I mean, if you go on too, there's it's, it's all political calculus, right? I mean, for one thing, if you go on, you get double the news cycle, one, the agreeing, agreeing to go in the town hall and then the actual town hall. And then whatever you do, when you get there, the performance is it is it an endeavor to get the sort of attention that Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, presumably tried to get by not going on at all? 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's not exclusive to this decision made by one campaign. It's all it's all the same thing. The um, I was going to talk a little bit about Bernie and the New York Times interview, but let's do that next week because I think there's some interesting things there, too. And let me hard cut directly to the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time, David. Uh, by the way, got an important note from listener Brian Terrison in Seattle uh, who tweets at us, what are the future betting lines on the Pete Rebuta judge overworked Twitter <laughs> joke of the week? So we've had the... Beto re- reboot. We've had the Kamala Harris reboot. Will we have reboot a judge, David? Uh, what kind of cousin Sal odds would you like to put on that? Uh, I think those are really strong odds. I don't really know how odds work, but I would, <laughs> but I would, but I would, I would, uh, I, w- I wouldn't, I, I would say, you know, somewhere in the in the two to one range. Um, I got a an overworked Twitter joke from Ralph Horowitz in Australia, in Melbourne, and you know what a fan I am of Australian culture. Sure, but I couldn't actually understand the joke. Um, and it was about, so Bob Hawke, who was the beloved former prime minister of Australia, guy who modernized the Australian economy, did a lot of other things, very well liked, uh, just passed away. And Ralph was drawing me to all the Twitter jokes about people suggesting that Bob Hawke, that you take a day off because Bob Hawke died. So I turned to my friend, Russell Jackson, Australia, and he explains this overworked Twitter joke <laughs> for us. You might say translating it from Australian into American. Um, and he says, after Australia won the America's Cup yacht race in 1983, Hawk as PM said, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up today is a bum. Okay. Every second Australian tweeted that any boss who sacked anyone for not turning up to work the day after Bob Hawk died last week is a bum. So it was definitely overworked, but I like it most because it focuses on the most Australian thing imaginable, taking tenuous days off and the least Australian thing imaginable, which is expensive yachts. So thank you um, <laughs> to Ralph and mm. Russell for explaining that to us. We, we like to be international here. Um, I think, David, we have to do Game of Thrones overwork oh, this week. Please, yes. Because that's everything. So again, please fast forward if you have not uh, watched a show or consumed the voluminous ringer content about it. This one comes from Daniel T. Clark and William Boitler. Um, Bran, Bran the Broken, is the person in the group project who didn't do anything but ends up presenting because everyone else is shy and then gets all the credit. <laughs> or alternatively, Bran didn't even show up once with their group project but still got an A. Uh, thank you, Daniel <laughs> Clark and William Boitler for that one. And finally, I saw Charlie Pierce on Twitter pleading with people to stop making 2020 election Game of Thrones references, which uh, Saliza just took off the board forever. Yes, please don't do that. But (laughs) I do think there's room for a subtler category of Twitter joke that sort of joins Game of Thrones and politics. So here are a few from last night's episode. Again, if if you haven't seen this, this will mean nothing to you. We watched eight seasons uh, of Game of Thrones for this to end with a CNN town hall with the Lords of Westeros. (laughs) And finally... Brand gonna run around Westeros telling everyone why his favorite book is Ulysses. Uh, so, so if you compare the future of Westeros to the future of the Democrats, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, before we move on, let's take a quick break. If you're a podcast and movie fan like I am, you need to check out Luminary. They've just launched a bunch of great original shows that you can only find on their platform, including a spinoff of our show, The Rewatchables, called The Rewatchables 1999, which dissects the most iconic movies from 1999, all-time great year in film you might have read about right here in The Ringer. Each episode breaks down a different movie with highly specific categories, analyzing it from every possible angle. Categories include most rewatchable scene, who won the movie, best quote, 
Could This Be Made Into a Netflix Series in 2019, The Overacting Award, and many more. The series will cover American Pie, Office Space, The Matrix, and other classics from 99. I'm also excited about a brand new podcast called Poetics with Omari Hardwick. Hardwick, star of the hit television series Power, presents Poetics, a new podcast that invites you inside the minds and lyrics of the biggest names in hip-hop and the culture. Every show, Omari invites his guests to share an original poem or verse before diving deep into the stories and history to give every word its meaning. Season one features Wyclef Jean, Dave East, Big Daddy Kane, Dizzy Wright, Casanova, and many more. The Luminary app is free to download. You can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including the ones you already love, like this one, all enhanced with easy-to-use interface with personalized content recommendations. Whether you're into music, movies, sports, comedy, or more, Luminary has the right show for you. If you love podcasts, you need to check out Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash channel 33. After that, it's $7.99 a month. That's luminary.link slash channel 33 for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash channel 33. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. All right, David. Topic number two, Stephen A., ESPN debate TV pioneer Stephen A. Smith had a pretty amazing half week, which you alerted me to in uh, in email because this was all happening while I was asleep in London. And I'd wake <laughs> up and it would be trending topics. Stephen A. speaks in the dark. And I'd just be, I have no idea what just happened. But um, let's just stroll through it and you jump in uh, when you feel moved to. <laughs> it began after the NBA lottery, where if you haven't been following Jason Concepcion, you might not know that the Knicks... Once once again, failed to land the number one overall pick <laughs> and uh, thus draft Zion Williamson. Here was Stephen A. Smith's reaction to that news. Damn! Damn it! Damn it! <sighs> Typical Knicks, man. I knew it. They'd get close. They'd tease us. Then they wouldn't get it done. Oh, oh, oh! Oh! <laughs> um, I saw that compared to leave Britney alone, but is there is there a sort of more highbrow cultural reference <laughs> we're missing here? What did that remind you of? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think he's. I think at this point he's evoking the past. This is there's probably a Game of Thrones joke here. He's evoking everything that's come before and and uh and the history of sports casting and meme them, but he's making it into his own his his own thing. He will be the point of reference going forward. I, I strongly believe. And there was no light for this. This this was a this was a Twitter video, but he, he was just there was just this voice coming from the gloom, like just angry. It was like somebody in a basement. Um, let us continue. This is a little clip from Stephen A's radio show on the same theme that was tweeted out to the world by Pablo Torre. I am having a very bad day. I am in no mood. <laughs> This, today, is one of the worst days that I've had in a long time. I'm not in the mood to play with anybody. Radio really is a theater of the mind, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man, that's so great. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, this is performance art of the highest order. Um, and listen, this 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 run of Stephen A. Smith uh, memeiness uh, did, 
pre- preceded the draft. Um, I started seeing him pop up in my Twitter feed and, you know, in like office Slack. Uh, in the week leading up to it, with a much higher rate than normal, where he would it would just be sort of just random explosions uh, that he did on the air, on TV, or whatever else. Um, you know, just just moments of just just inanity that were, ju- but but that doubled as sort of moments of bliss. Um, Stephen A. Smith has certainly found. I mean, for someone who spends roughly twenty hours a day doing TV or radio, he has found a wonderful sideline in uh in in his this sort of social media half-life and uh it's it is really impressive to see both him embrace that and uh and sort of the world embrace that at the same time so it's sometime in the last six months sports writing opinion leaders turned around on Stephen a smith yes they decided that they liked Stephen a smith I seem to remember, and 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 you know, f- forgive me if I'm wrong, but I just remember a Barry Pachesky tweet or or Deadspin post or some. I can't remember what he wrote, but there was some kind of man. You got to give it to Stephen A. Smith, and I was like, oh wow, we we've re- we've 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 come around here. And then I saw this Will Leach item this week. He says, I give up. Stephen A. wins. I accept it in a sports media world of disingenuous hucksters, blatant liars, and barstool. This sort of lunatic performance art has a certain dignity to it. Good for you, Stephen A. If someone has to reign, it might as well be you. And I guess what interests me is why why we, if I if I may include myself in this, came around on him. <laughs> oh because man. Is it just that he is it just that I mean, the thing people didn't like about these shows was that it was performance art. It wasn't real. It wasn't a re- it wasn't real sports opinions. It was it was performance art. And and, and let's table the idea for a second that the rest of us are not doing performance art. We are strictly doing yeah. genuine sports reactions all the time. But they didn't like those performance art. So do we just did we eventually fall in love with Stephen A because he was so committed to the performance art? <laughs> yes. That there was so little difference between real Stephen A and Stephen A reaction on air that we were like, oh wow, he just he has owned the bit and that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, this is Oh, God. I mean, earlier this month, there was a day when I was watching First Take, and and the this the topic of and this will this will will uh, I guess come full. I mean, be more meaningful in a second. But he, he he they were talking about Magic Johnson leaving the Lakers, and it just devolved or evolved into Stephen A. Smith repeatedly pronouncing at the top of his lungs, "I will not rest." I mean, the, and the rest of the sentence was until he got to the bottom of why Magic left the Lakers. But it was just, "I will not rest. <laughs> I will not rest." Do you hear me? I will not rest. And uh, that, I mean, I was just like, I was typing away at my computer, and when that stopped, when that started, I just had to stop everything and just stare at the screen. I mean, it was just one of the most impressive performances I've seen. I mean. I, I, without getting, and then today he found out. He did. He found <laughs> he, he out. Did, he did. He did. That was really great. I will. Uh, before we get to that, I want to go back to what you said before. Our boss Bill Simmons has been a, a an outspoken Stephen A. advocate for a little while, and I think it's a lot of that is is the well. I mean, to take I will not rest. I guess to a more literal level. I mean, he's he is one of the hardest working p- people in sports media. You know, you don't have to appreciate what he does. You don't have to. You know you don't have to acknowledge the degree of difficulty that is certainly there to say that like the number of hours he spends on television and radio, the his, his, his just incredible gravity, the, his significance to, to ESPN um, is just so clear. I mean, they, they have him, 
they have them, you know, doing blocks on Get Up now just to te- to leak because they know that people are going to care about, you know, people will tune in early who would for, for you know, the first tape viewers will tune in, or, tune in early to see him. And he's just on for the rest of the day doing all kinds of sports, you know, I mean, just to bring him in for anything. And um, he's he's tireless, you know, I mean, he's he is he is a hard worker. But I think that I think that you to answer the question about why we came around, I think that a lot of people, I mean, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to bring this back or I'm going to bring this around to pro wrestling again. I think people at the beginning. Oh, no, I, I thought you were going to say Game of Thrones. No, I was worried no. there. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. no, but it was him and, and I think Skip, you know, Skip Bayless, you know, who who worked with him on first take, but also preceded him, yeah. um, is a different sort of personality. And I don't want to play them off each other, but I but the, some of the distaste for for them together and for Stephen A individually, I think there was a denial of the of the artifice, right? There was there was a feeling that he was he was putting he he was a, he was a, a huckster or he was he was putting on a show, but that they were trying to get us to think it was real. And it's like it's like when when you're when you tell someone you're a wrestling fan and they're just like, well, you know that stuff's fake, don't you? And you just you're just it's it's exasperating. You're <laughs> like, yes, of course it's fake. That's the beauty of it, right? And then it's when you buy in, you realize that the the flexing and the grunting and everything else is like the best that like the fakest parts of it are the best parts of it. And and I think that I think in over I don't know what happened, but at some point we all got uh, accustomed enough to Stephen A that we are now fully in on the joke. Okay. So and and when Stephen A is who is from New York, as he said in a couple of these amazing cuts from this week, is he really upset that genuinely upset about the Knicks not getting their number one pick or is he Rick flaring his <laughs> way through a segment about like that, that that's, I guess what I'm trying to do because I think what a lot of people were upset about was these aren't these people's real opinions, sure. whether it's, you know, what all the debate people you named, um, is he winking at us? And saying, I know, I know you know that I don't feel exactly like this about the Knicks, but I think you'll ride with me because this will be so wildly entertaining. Or is he still because I I don't I you know, Stephen A gives interviews fairly frequently, but I don't know if I've ever read him say this. He never says this is just an act. No. Right. I mean, this is the, he would, in fact, I think vehemently deny that it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I think that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, does he is I mean, the Knicks stuff is feels like degrees like 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 a further degree of put on but at the same time like so i mean i I don't i think he does believe it on some level and i think he probably believes it much more seriously than he believes whatever the preceding take was you know he's he is he is he's legitimately more emotionally worked up about the knicks than he is about whether or not russell westbrook can be a number one option you know and so just the fact that he's operating in degrees of magnitude makes it seem like this is just you know the volume has turned so much further up but um but yeah i mean i think that i, I mean listen part of the implicit agreement of pro wrestling is that it will is that you have to is that the performers and the viewers are going to interact as if it's real even though we all know it's fake so Stephen a can't go out and say i'm just i'm just messing with you like he can't like that part of it like to, to make it fun, he has to he has to be this outsized personality. He has to be the character he's playing on the screen. But I mean, he winks at us every day. So I don't I don't know that there's I don't know that there's that much of a distance between him telling us what's true and what's not and and him just doing what he does. 
I love this. I I I I picked the exact right guy to explain this. My, I'm 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 so happy. <laughs> and this is this is great. I feel I feel now I'm because I just I, I was really having the trouble of of reconciling this, but now I think I think I get it. Um, it does strike me as interesting, and and Skip has done this. In fact, I've written about it in the Ringer. You know, has sort of leaned into his Cowboys fandom a little bit, and you see Stephen A. leaning into his, uh, you know, I guess childhood Knicks fandom, and I think that also f- fixes one of the problems that people have with debate TV because they're like, nobody could be this passionate about every subject. Like you might be really passionate about, you know, pick an NBA subject or a football subject or whatever you want, but like nobody's passionate, this passionate about the D block. Nobody's like, okay, now I've just, I'm, I'm gone crazy about the NBA and the NFL. And let me tell you about uh, Deontay Wilder. And I'm going to get worked up about this too. Like people just don't buy, but if you mix in fandom, then that's something that people at home can sort of understand. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I felt like that too when my team didn't win the lottery. Or I felt like that when my team lost mm-hmm. a big game. And it sort of bridges that divide between, you know, human at home and debate guy on TV, I think a little bit, and makes that a little more, um, a little more palatable. Can we just play a little bit of his magic johnson thing because this was this was actually a hugely newsmaking it was amazing interview. yeah magic answered questions for like two hours the day he resigned as lakers president and never said any of this stuff uh and in fact jim just just play the very front of this clip i put i put like 30 seconds down but just just play the very front of this because i think it's uh very revealing of the Stephen a method does magic johnson feel betrayed and if so by whom <laughs> I, I want to learn how to answer all my I ask all my questions as a journalist in a third person <laughs> like that does Joe Tessitore feel betrayed and by whom <laughs> does Scott Van Pelt feel betrayed and by whom like that that's I just want to adopt that style I think that's fantastic I, I just started laughing when I saw that. that was that was great that was great but the interview was amazing yeah I mean magic just just let loose he did and and by the way there's all this I mean, it's like going to feed the ringer for days, but there's all this debate show content coming now about like, why did Magic say this now, right before the Lakers are trying to sign free agents or trying to trade for Anthony Davis? And, you know, that's a whole, I mean, it's just, like you said, I'm, I guess I'm in the Will Leach camp. I mean, we just give it up. It's It's unbelievable. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The interview is fantastic. I mean, it's worth listening to in full for Stephen A's performance and, uh, and, you know, I mean, it has to be said, uh, uh, we got to give a little bit of credit here to his co-host, Max Kellerman, who I think that some of the realization that this is all a put on had to come from the fact that Kellerman came from slightly more serious, a slightly more serious journalistic ba- or, 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 you know, television journalist background. And just sort of when, when the first take opportunity arose, he was just like, yes, I can do that. I can be that person if you want me to be. Um, so he. I thought you were going to say that Max Kellerman came from yeah. boxing and that he, he sort of understood it. Well, it makes it, it means that Deont- the Deontay Wilder segments have a little bit more oomph to him. That's for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a uh, you know the, that whole interview was was just very good. The part there was one point where he made a quip about Magic Johnson being able to name players now, which he got into trouble, you know, for like tampering when he would name, mention players when he was working for the Lakers, and they both just broke up and just yeah. started just laughing hysterically. Um, Magic Johnson was clearly in on the gag here. I mean, he came on with a with a with a you know he he knew what he was getting into. He probably helped orchestrate with with the, you know the entire thing. Um, but he also seemed 
to be operating on a different sort of level than Stephen A. Smith. Uh, it's, it's, and, and, you know, Stephen A.'s just, just wild style, I mean, just makes everything... I mean the fact that he that he does that and pulls it off it just seems it just seems so much more so much more interesting. I think also his connection to people like Magic his genuine repertorial connection to lots of people in the NBA also makes him stand out yes. in this world. Because when you watch him you do feel like he is talking to people and he may not be you know reporting at the same level he may just not have time given as you say the 20 hours of sports talk he does a day but you do have a feeling that he's in touch mm-hmm. with that world and knows what's going on and i don't think you'd say that about everyone else in that space uh i don't uh, you know and and i do think that gives him a little more gravitas is probably not the word we're looking for but uh i think it gives him something like gravitas on debate tv all right david let's talk a little brian williams before we wrap all up right here. i've had this uh in my uh press box tbd notebook for a long time and I direct you to an April 24th Politico newsletter written by Daniel Lippman and Paul Volpe, uh, quoting the return of Brian Williams to cable network anchor status has been so understated and seamless that it would have been easy not to notice. It was just over four years ago that he was removed from the NBC anchor chair for fabricating a story about coming under fire while in a helicopter covering the invasion of Iraq in t- 2003. Uh, the authors go on to note that Williams anchored the coverage of William Barr's press conference uh, before the release of the Mueller report. Uh, he was also there for the State of the Union, host of the network's midterm election night coverage last year. Why do we think, and I think there's some, I think there's all kinds of interesting reasons here, but why do we think Brian Williams has been able to so seamlessly come back and get, if not his old job back, then something approximating his job on cable news? Um, well, the very, like the base reason is because he had the support of NBC, right? I mean, they, they removed him, but then, you know, placed him onto MSNBC. And, and I, I remember well his first appearances there doing election. I I believe he, he popped up initially during, at election time and, and was, uh, and was sort of anchoring these sort of round tables with the other hosts. And, and there was, you know, there was, there was a little bit of side eye from the other people there having to share the stage with them, despite the fact that they all seem to be very friendly and, and, you know, convivial, um, or collegial, but, the, but, you know, I also think that there's an element that, that goes along with that, where it's either people at NBC or the public at large is in so much as they understand at all what it was that got him fired. They're a little bit sympathetic to it. Um, I think there's probably people at NBC who are, um, you know, who who probably say like, well, hell, I've, I lie more than that. I, mean, I I tell bigger lies than that every day, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that, and I think that most people can sympathize. You, you should have seen what I've gotten past <laughs> yeah. the NBC news censors, man. It's, I, he, he, he lied about one helicopter ride, man. I got, I got worse <laughs> stuff that on the air on Tuesday. Um, yeah. I mean, and I, and I think that, you know, I've mentioned it on the show before. I think we, we've we've discussed it a little bit, but there's you know Malcolm Gladwell had a whole episode of his podcast Revisionist History about this subject and about how we all we all fabulous we we're all fabulous in retelling stories. You know our memories are, don't function in the way that we want them to function. They 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 lend themselves to that sort of fabulism. Um, and you know I think that there's a certain amount there's a, there's a degree to which it's it's identifiable. Also though I think that the bigger issue if you want to make a philosophical case about it. And I and I and I, you. I think you're the one that made this point to me. Is that he's not a, he, you know, 
he's not primarily a a journalist. He's not a newsman. He's a performer. You know, he, he's there. He, he's, he's there to read us yeah. the news, you know, and and uh, and I'm not sure that. That for that job description, it's it's quite as significant to be to have a, you know, absolutely clean resume in that in that department. So the Gladwell point and I and I and I'm, his point is absolutely true when it when it comes to just us telling stories but let, let's not forget that the the williams story was it not that his his helicopter was hit by an rpg and been forced to land yeah. and that just didn't happen so that that's mm-hmm. not right he doesn't get to be he doesn't get the misremember on that one and i just embellished it but yeah i i totally i totally agree with the point i think the other thing and Lippmann and volpe make this point in their politico thing is that and this is this is pretty messed up but but i guess uh speaks to the world we live in is that you know, Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose and Mark Halperin went down for Me Too offenses and uh-huh. or alleged offenses. And that weirdly, as bad as what Brian Williams did, he didn't do that. And yeah. those guys just made him by being by that behavior being so disgusting slash immoral slash unlawful. They weirdly, by some weird boomerang effect, made him look a little better. And so, you mm-hmm. know, he's kind of ushered back on the news and, and, and I, I don't doubt that that's right. And, and again, I, I it just, one should have nothing to do with the other, but, um, it is really interesting. The other thing that I was thinking of with, with Williams is that it's really interesting to me how cable news has responded to Trump because we saw when Obama was president, the button that Roger Ailes pushed at Fox news was, I want my conservative commentators glenn beck sean hannity whomever to just say the craziest things about obama i want them just to go you know pictures of joseph stalin on the screen here we go it's all about opinionating it's all about you know uh just just going off i it's been a little different has it not with liberal cable news and quote-unquote liberal cable news i think it's more about uh and maybe this has to do with trump maybe this has to do with their personal style but it's more about being the newsman or newswoman mm-hmm. it's more about you know just the facts it's more about reporting i think you see what the way chris cuomo has kind of styled himself on cnn um you have brian williams getting a bigger role at M- msnbc and msnbc being pretty different i think sometimes the most damning thing that you can do i mean the, the most damning argument you can make is just reading the facts right and that's and and in some ways just like a a laundry list of the things that happened in the news today is a more effective way of um, playing to the liberal base that watches the network or, you know, just generally m- making the argument against Trump than an actual, than a literal argument against Trump. All right, David, let's do a quick notebook dump and then we'll get out of here. The uh, couple notes, New Orleans Pelicans won the NBA draft lottery and outside of a cataclysmic asteroid style event will draft Duke's Zion Williams the number one overall. Um, sure is a really bad time for the New Orleans Times picking a newspaper to have been sold and shut down, um, <laughs> meaning the already depleted Pelicans press corp will be even more depleted. Yeah, they had last year when I wrote about this, you know, the Pelicans did not have somebody on the road with the team full time. And it, to me, it's like, so one, it's sad, but it's two, it's really interesting to see what they'll do with Zion and if that is enough of a reason to sort of 
you know, get employers to buy airline tickets and that sort of thing. Uh, second, Steve Croft is leaving 60 Minutes. Uh, here he was saying goodbye at the end of last night's show. We end tonight's broadcast on a personal note. After 50 years in journalism, 40 years at CBS News, and 30 years at 60 Minutes, it doesn't seem possible, I've decided to retire. It's been a difficult decision, one that I've considered at the end of each of the past four seasons. Now feels like the right time. As my good friend and colleague Morley Safer advised me a few days before he passed away, don't stay too long. So Steve Croft, only 73 years old, which uh, in 60 Minutes terms is kind of young, I think. 60 Minutes is kind of like the Senate. You just, mm-hmm. you, there's really no need to ever leave. Uh, so that's number one. He's, he's, he's walking out a little bit early. Number two, Steve Croft looked more skeptical than any reporter in the history of network news. And I just mean his, like his, <laughs> his visage, you know, he just, he, he, he was the, he had the perfect look when he's sitting across from the politician or the, you know, insurance salesman or whatever. I mean, he just looked like he didn't believe the shit that you were saying. And <laughs> it was really, he did, he did the big bill and Hillary interview back in, you know, I've, I've caused pain in my marriage thing back in, in 1992. Mm-hmm. But, um, and it was always weird when he was doing a celebrity profile. Cause like he'd be with Giannis and look kind of skeptical and you're like, really are you skeptical of what Giannis is saying? You know, I don't think you are, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. I just, it really worked on 60 minutes. Godspeed to, uh, to Steve Croft, the guardian, David, whose print edition I was consuming daily in London announced that instead of climate change, their reporters are now instructed to use the term climate emergency, climate crisis, or climate breakdown. Uh, they'll also be saying global heating instead of global warming. Uh, do we have any reaction to that news? Um, uh, no, I mean, that's, that sounds, that sounds significant. <laughs> I think we'll be, I think we'll be talking about that more, uh, in the coming, <laughs> in future, in the coming that days. That sounds significant. That sounds significant. We'll talk about that more in a future episode. It's definitely a good way to handle any difficult news item. <laughs> All right. How about this? This is more fun. David Shoemaker guesses the terrible bun headliner book title. Oh no. Um, okay. Uh, wait, I'm, I'm glad you said that because listener Jake uh, writes us and says, I'm looking forward to my favorite part of each episode when David is caught off guard by the arrival of the recurring segment where he guesses the headline. Quote, I could, oh God, I could ask God, for God, these God, in God. advance, guys. I, I could ask for these. In, I, could, I could actually look, I could, I could look at our research Google document ahead of time and I, I proceed not to every yeah, week. Well, that'd be, that'd be a lot of work. All right. I have a British tabloid strain pun headline for you, David. Uh, Jennifer Aniston is 50 years old, which actually happened back in February but she posed for some scantily clad photos in Harper's Bazaar. One of those, gosh, doesn't she look great at 50 type of things. Okay. 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 The British tabloid, the Daily Mail pulled one of those scantily clad Jennifer Aniston photos and put what pun headline over it. Oh no. Uh, so Jennifer Aniston, mm-hmm. scantily clad, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. And I would I would think about her, you know, most significant contribution to American culture when thinking about what the pun might be. Uh, friends. Uh-huh. Friend, maybe, maybe uh huh. Friend. Maybe something about the with friends things. like these. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to say there, but oh, maybe something about the- wait, no, 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 I got it, I got it. Is it I'll be bare for you? Yeah, there we go. There we Is go. Is that right? Yeah! Yes. Wow! My first ever. Oh my god! As someone who bought that Rembrandt's album because of that song, 
back in high school. I feel like finally that investment has paid off. We, we, we truly have damning confessions here on the Press Box. David about the Rembrandt's album. All right. I'm Brian Curtis. He's David Shoemaker. Jim Cunningham back this week as producer. Chris Almeida helps with research. More lukewarm takes on the media next week. See you then, David. See you later, man. David? Yeah. I am having a very bad day. Scantily clad, 50 years old. This, today, um, is one of the worst days that I've had in a long time. <laughs> I'm not in the mood to play with anybody. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I will not rest. I will not rest. Do you hear me? I will not rest. Ah! I was really having the trouble of, of reconciling this, but now I think I think I get it. Um, I tell bigger lies than that every day, you know. <laughs> um, and I think that and I think that most people can sympathize. You, you should have seen what I've gotten past <laughs> yeah. the NBC News censors. Um, we end tonight's broadcast on a personal note. Please don't do that. But. <laughs> Radio really is the theater of the mind, isn't it? Uh, no. 